a Savior that lives. We have a Redeemer, and He's not stuck in some tomb somewhere. He's alive, and He's with us today. We're going to sing about that right now. My Redeemer lives. We're going to shout about it, too, so y'all better catch up with us. Got a little good guitar at the end, too, so...
get your blood flowing. I tell you, that Clay is an amazing guitar player. Yes, he is. <laughs> Let's give him a hand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God wants us to love us, but he doesn't want us to love us from the surface. He wants it to come from deep down in our hearts, and he wants us to display to everyone around us that he is within us and that we need him. And this song speaks of that, of loving God from the inside out.
let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond all faith and the cry of my heart is to Forever, 
say is thank you because there's nothing we can do to pay it back there's nothing that I have that is not yours already and yet I hold on to it so tightly Um, Lord please bless these gifts and multiply them as you do every day in Jesus name we pray amen Well, as you are well aware, this is the 10th anniversary of of 9-11, and there's no way we could have a worship service without recognizing that and acknowledging it in some way. So we have a video we will not forget, and as I was sitting here, I noticed the American flag. It looks like it slipped, but I think it's at half-mast, and uh, there's a lot of sadness in our nation today, and uh, we won't forget not because we hate our enemy, but because our hearts go out to the victims and the families, and we pray for our military today in a special way.
remembrance of the difficult seasons of our darkest hours. To remember is to honor. To honor is to value. What we value shapes who we become. Throughout Scripture, God urges us to remember the sacrifices made, the freedom gained, the promises kept, the faithfulness of God. Through symbols and sacraments and holy disciplines, God has continued to urge us to always remember. Because He knows what remembering does inside of us. Remembering gives purpose to our past by drawing wisdom, strength, and resolve from our pain and loss. Remembrance brings gratitude for those ordinary people who became extraordinary heroes. Remembrance strengthens community as we discover what God does through us when we are unified. Remembrance provides perspective of what God has done on our behalf in spite of our fears and worry. Remembrance reignites hope in what God will bring us through today and forever. Because God is faithful, even in our darkest hours. God is always there. Whatever we face today, whatever trial it seems we cannot endure, remember, God has always brought us through, and He always will. This is why we remember. Ten years ago, about this time, uh, and what you were doing, and it changed our world, it's changed our lives, and this reminded us of, of how precious life is, and as hard as it is for us to believe that there are folks out there that hate us for who we are and, and what we believe, and uh, our democracy, our way of life. So let's just take a moment right now and pray for our enemies. And pray for our military and pray for our nation's leaders. Let's bow together. Father, on this 10 year anniversary of, of 9 11, we acknowledge that your hand has been upon our nation from its inception. And you have provided for us and protected us and been with us every step of the way. We've had major wars, wars that were, uh, the odds were stacked against us. And yet time and time again, you brought us through victoriously. And we acknowledge it was because your hand was upon us. And then 10 years ago, Lord, a new enemy 
raised its head. And it's one that we've been fighting since then. Uh, An enemy fueled by religious hatred that it teaches its children that America is evil. And they have been raised to to fight America and to despise our way of life from the moment they could, could walk almost and talk. Father, we pray that somehow truth would descend upon those nations. And we don't know how you're going to do it because it seems like overwhelming odds, but that is what you specialize in, isn't it? And we pray that um, Al-Qaeda and all the radical Islamic fundamentalists would realize that, that we can coexist, that, that there is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that we will be true to worshiping you and you alone no matter what. We pray for our military today, Lord, those who are fighting an enemy that doesn't really wear uniforms but slips in and out among the crowd and gets into unmarked cars loaded with bombs and straps explosives around human beings. An enemy that's so foreign to us that we find it difficult to understand and protect against. So bless and protect those who are serving even now in the Middle East and in our nation's cities today where the threat level remains high. And Father, be with our leaders as they seek to guide and provide for our military in a way that that will best protect them and that will bring victory soon and sure. Help us as a nation to stand true to what we believe in and to the God we love and serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in a series of of preaching through the Bible, and we've gotten through some of the Old Testament, and and this morning we're in 2 Kings, and there are a lot of interesting passages in 2 Kings, but I picked an obscure one. You know, sometimes I pick one that you're real familiar with, like David and Goliath, or, or Samson, or something like that, but then there occasionally there are passages that you've probably never noticed before, or... Um, haven't really thought about that much that are as profitable for teaching and reproof and correction as any other passages in the Bible. 2 Kings 13 verses 14 through 20 is a passage that um, is, is usually overlooked, but I want to look at it today because I think it has something to teach us. And the sermon is entitled, Satisfied with Good Enough. And the point of the message lest you don't get it in the course of the sermon, 
is that so many Christians are satisfied with just getting by in their Christian walk. Just satisfied with status quo. Just comfortable enough to just kind of float along. But time and time again, God calls us to rise above what's expected. To do more than what people ask us to do. And to distinguish ourselves from the other, everyone else on the face of the earth by the extravagance of our love and grace and mercy, which first he gave to us. 2 Kings 13, 14 through 20. It's a strange passage. Let's look at it. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. In other words, Joash is saying, My father, my father, I love you more than all the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. He said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you've made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of that year. What was Joash's mistake? Elisha told him to strike the ground with the arrows, and Joash took the arrows And he struck the ground three times, and Elisha was mad at him for striking the ground only three times. He said if you had struck it five or six times, you would have struck the Syrians until you defeated them completely. Wow. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, as we gather here to worship today, forgive us for being faint of heart. For doing just enough to get by. For coming in here and worshiping on Sunday. Professing our faith and getting baptized. And then returning to a way of life that really isn't that different from the way it was before we were saved. We have become so complacent and so comfortable We need something, Lord, to wake us up and to shock us into greater love, deeper devotion, more committed service to Thee. In Your name we pray. Amen. There was a book that came out several years ago by Jim Collins entitled From Good to Great. Remember that book? I think it came out in the early 2001, 2002, something like about 10 years ago. And in this book, Jim Collins took about a dozen, dozen companies that had made it to the next level. 
They distinguished themselves by doing more than what other companies had done. And he, he, he and his team of researchers picked those companies apart to try to figure out what it was that made them different, that made them rise above all the other companies. And uh, I got interested in it because a lot of my friends were talking about it in conferences. There were as many churches, church leaders reading this book as there were business leaders. And so when I went to, to preacher conferences, they're talking about from good to great and, and what it would take to, to raise a church from being, you know, just a good church, which most churches are, to being a church that really is on fire for the Lord, really making a difference. And, and I looked at the book and I, I kind of concluded that what works in the business world is not always what works in the church world, to be honest with you, because Jesus often takes business concepts and turns them upside down. Jesus says, if you want to be great among you, you must be servant of all. Who's going to be first must be last of all. And that doesn't really correspond with the reality of the business world. But I think the point of what Jim Collins was trying to say is good. And I think that's what Elisha was trying to teach from this passage in 2 Kings. 2 Kings is primarily the story of Elijah passing the mantle on to Elisha, and then Elisha's ministry, his prophecy, and and ultimately his death, which we read about right here in 2 Kings 13. And then all the kings that followed. There There were three kings who were kings of Israel when it was one nation. Who were they? Remember the three kings? Saul... David and Solomon. Those were the three kings of Israel. At the conclusion of Solomon's reign, Israel divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then after that, the northern kingdom had about 20 kings and the southern kingdom had about 24 kings. And that's what these books are about. The kings, they, they lived, they, they led the nation. And it's, it's real interesting, the author of First and Second Kings judges how good a king is by how faithful he is to the worship of God. If he leads the children of Israel to worshiping God, he is a good king. But if he steers the children of Israel away from the worship of God, he is a bad king. And unfortunately, there are more bad kings than there are good kings in in 2 Kings. Well, along comes Joash, and I think he wants basically to do the right thing. But Elisha calls him in, and Elisha's on his deathbed. He is concluding his 50 years of of ministry to the children of Israel, his prophecy, his 50 years are coming to a close. And basically, he wants to know what level of commitment King Joash has to the Lord God of Israel. He said, the Lord will provide victory over Syria if Joash would just be a good leader, a committed leader, an effective leader. And so Elisha, lying on his deathbed, says, bring me your bow and arrows. And Joash brings them. And Elisha says, open the window to the east. And and he places his hand upon Joash's hand and upon the bow, and they fire an arrow to the east. That's a strange thing, but you've got to remember these prophets in, in ancient Israel did a lot of symbolic actions. A lot of their prophecies were symbolic. And when he fired this arrow to the east... Elisha said, this arrow symbolizes your victory over our eastern enemy, over Syria. 
That's good. But then Elisha says, take the arrows that you have left and strike the ground. Joash takes the arrows. Elisha didn't tell him how many times to strike the ground. So Joash takes the arrows and he goes, bam, bam, bam. And Elisha gets mad at him. He's angry with him. He's disappointed in him. Because he said, you've only struck the ground three times. You will only defeat Syria three times. If you had struck the ground five or six times, you would have completely wiped out your enemy. You would have been completely victorious over Syria. But by only striking the ground three times instead of more, you're failing the test of confidence and boldness and faith in God. An aggressive belief in the Lord God of Israel. That's what happened. Now, here's my problem with that. I want to run to Joash's defense, as a lot of you may want to. Elisha never specified how many times Joash was to strike the ground with his arrows. And and I've got to be honest with you. If I were Joash and Elisha had said, strike the ground with your arrows... I probably would have struck the ground once. Thinking that doing more than that would have been presumptuous. Would have uh, been disobedient. Would have, you know, taken um, some kind of authority that Elisha didn't intend for me to have. So I would have struck the ground once. And as I read this, I've got to wonder, is this really evidence that Joash was not prepared to lead Israel in victory over Syria. Is this really the defining moment in Joash's life? But then if you read some passages leading up to this, you'll realize that Elisha and Joash have had issues for a long time. Apparently, over, over their history together, This behavior was typical of Joash. He never really had confidence in God. He never really had belief in God's prophet Elisha. And there was always this tension between them. So when Joash took the arrows and struck the ground only three times, it became symbolic of Joash's entire demeanor and behavior and relationship with God. Joash, if you had struck the ground five or six times, if you had just done more than you thought you could get by with, if you had been a little more than just good enough, you could have led this nation to its great heights once again as it was during Solomon's reign. But as it is, you will be victorious over Syria, but it will not be an ultimate victory. And one day Syria will rise again and attack Israel and defeat us. Maybe I'm sympathetic toward Joash because of my own lack of commitment. You know, when I look over in the New Testament, I see what Jesus expects of his followers. And Jesus never really waters down his demands of his followers. We do in church a lot of times because we want to make it easy to follow Jesus. But Jesus says things like, whoever it is who will follow me must take up his cross. 
Whoever will be my disciples must take up his cross and follow me. And, and whoever will follow me must leave his, his wife and his father and mother and follow me. And he says things like, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 40 and 41, he says, if someone asks for your coat, give them your cloak also. In other words, if someone asks for your outer garment, give them your inner garment too. And if someone asks you to go one mile, go with them a second mile. Jesus is always asking those who bear the name Christian, those who are his disciples, to go above and beyond the call of duty, to do more than what's expected, to do more than what's required, to do more than just good enough to get by. But we, we dilute that a little bit in the church today to make it a whole lot easier, to make Jesus' radical demands a whole lot more palatable to modern life. But Jesus knew that Christians would never distinguish themselves from the rest of the world by doing only what's expected of them. It's when you do what's more than expected. It's when you do what's more than required. that people begin to sit up and take notice and say, why is, why is he doing this? Why is he loving like this? Why is he reaching out like this? Why is he serving like this? It's because Jesus has called us to do more than just enough to get by, to do more than just good enough. And as I think about what Jesus asked us to do, I couldn't help but reflect also on, on what God's already done for us. Aren't you glad that God did more than just enough to get by? Amen? Aren't you glad that God didn't, he never did anything halfway? When God does something, it's always more than enough for our cup to be run, running over. When God does something, there's always an abundance left over. Look at Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just enough for those people that day standing around the cross to be saved. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was enough for all men, for all time, for every sin that had ever been committed or could ever be committed to be forgiven. When Jesus died on the cross, there was an abundance of grace and love poured out upon us. And that reminded me of Ephesians 3.20. When God is working through us, there is no limit to what we're capable of by God's power. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To him be the glory. When God's working in us, we're able to do more than, far more abundantly than anything we ask or even think. So when God does something like loving or reaching or accepting or forgiving, there's an abundance there, an overabundance, a superabundance that God pours out upon his people. Everything he does from the moment of creation until now is perfect. You know, I was thinking about that this morning in, in Genesis 1 when God created the world and everything in it. He didn't say, 
Well, that's good enough. He said, that's good. That's very good. And then he'd create the land. That's very good. Then he created the waters. That's very good. And separated the waters from the land and the light from day and the birds of the air and the (coughs) the fish in the sea. That's very good. Everything that God ever does isn't just good enough. It's very good. And that's the way he is yesterday, today, and forever. And when he calls us to follow him, he wants us to do more than just enough to get by. But when we serve and love and reach and forgive and offer grace, he wants it to be very good. And that's how we distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world. It seems to me that when we do something that God calls us to do, we usually make one of two mistakes. In conclusion, when God asks us to do something, one mistake we usually make is that we try to do it too fast. We forget that God has time on his side, has eternity on his side. So a lot of times we run ahead of him instead of waiting on him and allowing him to move. So sometimes we move too fast. (laughs) The second mistake we usually make is that we dream too small. We move too fast and we dream too small because when God wants to do something, he wants to do it in a big way. He wants to do it in a way that will reach the entire world. When we think about something, we think about our church, we think about our community. Right now we're thinking about our state with state missions. Maybe we're dreaming too small. Maybe we need to think about the lost world. And what we can do to impact every person in the world for Jesus Christ. That's impossible. No, it's not. We just haven't thought of the way. We haven't dreamed big enough yet to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. Because when God does something, it's always over and abundantly and beyond all that we can ask or even think. Football player Mike Cohen played for the Miami Dolphins years ago. And when his pro career was over, the coaches prevailed upon him to be a recruiter. And so they were sending him out to do some recruitment for the Dolphins. And and Cohen was trying to get, you know, exactly, Coach, what are you looking for? And um, Coach said, well, you know, there's a player that when you knock him down, he stays down. Cohen said, we don't want him, do we, Coach? Coach said, no. Coach said, you know, there's a player that when you knock him down, he gets up. But when you knock him down a second time, he stays down. Cohen said, we don't want him, do we, Coach? Coach said, no. Coach said, you know, there's a kind of player that when you knock him down, he gets back up. When you knock him down, he gets back up. When you knock him down, he gets back up. Cohen said, that's the kind of player we want, isn't it, Coach? Coach said, no. Mike, I want you to find the guy out there who's knocking everybody down. That's the guy we want. And I say that to you this morning, not to say that we need to go out and bowl people over with the gospel instead of limping around timidly. But what I am saying 
is that we can be more aggressive and more confident and, and even more bold than we are now because of our faith in Jesus Christ. I want us to take those arrows and beat them into the ground until the arrows are splintered and there's a hole in the ground and we're looking around for more arrows. Let's not just strike the ground once or twice or three times, but when God asks us to do something, let's beat the stuff out of those arrows until God tells us to stop and then tells us to go and do something else. So long, friends, we've done just enough to get by. We've just been good enough. But God wants us to dream bigger. He wants us to be great. Because He is a great God. And we need to be more accurate reflections of Him. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come, we have to acknowledge our own failure, our lack of confidence, our lack of boldness. Because we, we try to do what you want us to do, but there's still some, some fear and, and hesitancy and timidity about it. And so we might stick our toe in the water just a little bit to test the waters and then maybe up to our ankle, maybe up to our knee. But we aren't ready just to run and jump into the deep end because we aren't sure that you'll be there to catch us. And so that represents a lack of faith on our part. We read where Elisha condemn Joash for not being bolder and taking those arrows and just beating them into the ground. And it doesn't seem fair on the surface. It doesn't seem like he's treated Joash in a right way. And yet we don't understand the history and we probably don't really understand everything that Elisha is trying to communicate by that symbolic gesture. But we know that because Joash failed to go above and beyond what Elisha was asking, you weren't going to do all that you could have done for the nation of Israel at that time when they were surrounded by enemy. Fathers, our nation is under attack today as our homes and our lives and our way of life are being challenged. Help us to trust you and love you and acknowledge you and worship you and go out of here with such faith that whatever you ask us to do, whatever direction you point us in, whatever challenge you raise, you raise up for us to to face we won't tiptoe around it but we'll take it head on and we'll overcome it by your grace and for your glory in Jesus name we pray